Section 1 of The Flight of the Heron. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eileen. The Flight of the Heron by D. K. Broster. Prologue A Promise of Fair Weather. The sun had been up for a couple of hours, and now, by six o'clock, there was scarcely a cloud in the sky. Even the peaked summit of Benti, away to the northeast, had no more than the faintest veil floating over it. On all the western slopes the transfiguring light, as it crept lower and lower, was busy picking out the patches of July bellheather and painting them an even deeper carmine. And the mountains round were smiling, where sometimes they frowned, on Lochnaholere, today a shining jewel, which tomorrow might be a mere blot of grey steel. It was going to be a very fine day, and in the west of Scotland such are none too plentiful. Lochnaholere, the loch of the eagle, was not large, little more than a mile long, and at its greatest breadth, perhaps a quarter of a mile wide. It lay among the encircling hills like a fairy pool come upon in dreams, yet it had not the desolate quality of the high mountain tarns, whose black waters lie shoreless at the foot of precipices. Lochnaholere was set in a level space as wide as itself. At one end was a multitude of silver-stemmed birches, of whom some loved the loch, or their own reflection, so dearly that they leaned over it until the veil of their hair almost brushed its surface. And with these court ladies stood a guard of very old pines, severe and beautiful, and here and there the feathered bravery of a rowan tree. Everywhere underfoot lay a carpet of bog myrtle and cranberry, pressing up to the feet of the pungent berried junipers and the bushes of the flaming broom, now but dying fires. And where the shore was widest, it unexpectedly sent out into the lake a jutting crag of red granite, grown upon in every cranny with heather, and crowned with two immense Scots pines. The loch's beauty, on this early summer morning of 1745, seemed at first to be a lonely and unappreciated loveliness, yet it was neither. On its northern shore, with a sandy bank, a little hollowed by the water, rose some three feet above it a dark, wiry young highlander, in a belted plaid of the Cameron Tartan, was standing behind a couple of large juniper bushes with a fowling-piece in his hand. He, however, was plainly not lost in admiration of the scene, for his keen eyes were fixed intently on the tree-grown islet which swam at anchor in the middle of the loch, and he had all the appearance of a hunter waiting for his quarry. Suddenly he gave an exclamation of dismay. Round the point of the island had just appeared the head, shoulder, and flashing arm of a man swimming, and this man was driving fast through the barely rippled water, and was evidently making for the shore in his direction. The highlander dropped out of sight behind the junipers, but the swimmer had already seen him. "'Who's there?' he called out, and his voice came ringing imperiously over the water. "'Stand up and show yourself.' The discovered watcher obeyed, leaving the fowling-piece on the ground, and the swimmer, at some ten yards' distance, promptly trod water, the better to see. "'Oh, Lachlan!' he exclaimed. "'What are you doing there?' 
and, as the Highlander did not answer, but suddenly stooped and pushed the fowling piece deeper into the heather at his feet, the occupant of the loch, with a few vigorous strokes, brought himself in until he was able to stand breast-high in the water. Now come nearer, he commanded, in Gaelic, and tell me what you're doing, skulking there. The other advanced to the edge of the bank. I was watching yourself, Machi Kellen, he replied in the same tongue, and in the sulky tone of one who knows that he will be blamed. And why, in the name of the good being, have you never seen me swim before? I had it in my mind that someone might steal your clothes, answered Lachlan McMartin, looking aside. Amadane, exclaimed the swimmer. There's no one between the Gary and the water of Arkig who would do such a thing, and you know it as well as I. Moreover, my clothes are on the other side, and you cannot even see them. No, the truth, or I will come out and throw you into the loch. And, balancing his arms, he advanced until he was only waist-deep, young and broad-shouldered, and glistening against the bright water and the trees of the island behind him. Confess now, and tell me the reason in your heart. If you will not be angry, I will be telling you, replied Lachlan to his chieftain Ewan Cameron, who was also his foster-brother. I shall make no promises. Out with it. I cannot shout it to you, Machi Kellen. It would not be lucky. Oh, do you think that I am coming out to hear it, before I have finished my swim? I will walk into you, if you wish, said Lachlan submissively and began to unfasten his plaid. Oh, do not be a fool, said the young man in the lock, half laughing, half annoyed, and, wading to the bank, he pulled himself up by the exposed root of a birch tree, and threw himself unconcernedly down among the heather and bog myrtle. Now it could be seen that he was some inches over six feet, and splendidly made. A swift runner, too, it was likely, for all his height and breadth of shoulder. His thick auburn hair, darkened by the water to brown, was plaited for the nuns into a short pigtail like a soldier's. His deep-set blue eyes looked out of a tanned face. But with a sunburn ended, his skin was as fair as a girl's. He had a smiling and determined mouth. Now, tell me truly why you are lurking here like a grouse on Ben T, he repeated. The half-detected culprit glanced from the naked young man at his feet, to the only partially concealed fowling-piece. You will not be pleased, I'm thinking. All the more reason for knowing, then, responded his chieftain promptly, hugging his bent knees. I shall stay here until you tell me. Okay, how these vegetables prick. And no, I do not want your plaid. I want the truth. I'm here, began Lachlan McMartin with great unwillingness. "'because there's something in the loch which may bring you ill-fortune, and—' "'Oh, in the loch? What, an ech uske, a water-horse?' "'He was smiling. "'No, not a water-horse, but my father says—' huh, "'It's a matter of the two sides. Angus has been seeing again. What was the vision?' "'But at that moment the speaker himself saw something, "'though not by the supernatural gift to which he was referring.' He stretched out a wet, accusing arm and pointed towards the juniper bush. What is that gun doing here? And at the very plain discomposure on its owner's face, a look of amusement came into his own. You cannot shoot a water horse, Lachlan, not with a charge of small shot. It is not a water horse, 
repeated his foster brother. He suddenly crouched down in the heather close to the swimmer. Now listen, Maki Helene, he said in a low, tense voice. My father is much troubled, for he had a seeing last night across the fire, and it concerned you. But whether for good or ill, he could not tell. Neither would he tell me what it was, save that it had to do with a heron. What is a pity Angus cannot be more particular in his predictions, observed the young man flippantly, breaking off a sprig of bog-myrtle and smelling it. Well? Oh, you know that I would put the hair of my head under your feet, went on Lachlan McMartin passionately. Now, on the island yonder there lives a heron. Not a pair, but one only. The young chieftain laid a damp but forcible hand on his arm. I will not have it, Lachlan, do you hear? he said in English. I'll not allow that bird to be shot. But Lachlan continued to pour out Gallic. Eowan, marrow of my heart, ask me for the blood out of my veins, but do not ask me to let the heron live, now that my father has seen this thing. It is a bird of ill omen, one to be living there alone, and to be spying when you are swimming. And if it is not a bochgen, as I have sometimes thought, it may be a witch. Indeed, if I had one, I would do better to put a silver bullet. Now stop, said the marrow of his heart peremptorily. If my father Angus has any warning to give me, he can tell it into my own ear, but I will not have that heron shot, whatever he saw. What do you suppose the poor bird can do to me? Bring your piece here and unload it. Out of the juniper bush and the heather, Lachlan, rising, pulled the fowling piece, and very slowly and reluctantly removed the priming and the charge. Oh, yet it is an evil bird, he muttered between his teeth. You must know that it is unlucky to meet a heron when one sets out on a journey. Oh, yes, broke in Ewan Cameron impatiently, in the same way that it is unlucky to meet a sheep or a pig, or a snake or a rat or a mouse, unless you kill them, or a hare, or a fox, or a woman, or a flat-footed man, and I know not what besides. Give me the gun. He examined it and laid it down. Now, Lachlan, as you have not yet promised to respect my wishes in this matter, and a gun is easily reloaded, you shall swear on the iron to obey me, and that quickly, for I am getting cold. Startled, the Highlander looked at his young chieftain to see whether he were serious when he suggested the taking of so great and inviolable an oath. But, unable from his expression to be sure, and being blindly, fanatically devoted to him, he obediently drew his dirk from its sheath, and was about to raise it to his lips to kiss it, when his foster-brother caught his arm. No, I was jesting, Lachlan, and you do not keep your beadock very clean. Not clean? exclaimed its owner, lowering the formidable hiltless blade. Then he bit his lip. Yeglishin, you're right. How came that rust there? A rust? It is blood. Ewan took it from him by its black handle of interlaced design, and ran a finger down it. No, I'm wrong. It was only the early sun on the steel. For the weapon lay across his palm, spotless and shining, the whole foot and a half of it. The dark Lachlan had turned very pale. Oh, give it to me, Machichelin, and let me throw it into the lock. It is not well to keep it, we both saw. What we saw. No, said his master with more composure. 
It is a good Dirk, and too old a friend for that. What I imagined can only have been the memory of the times when it has grallocked a deer for us two. He gave it back. We are neither of us tighter like your father. I forbid you to throw it away. Nor are you to shoot that heron. How do you hear? If his young chief was not, Lachlan McMartin was plainly shaken by what had happened. He thrust the dirk deep into the heather as though to cleanse it before he returned it to the sheath. I hear, he muttered. How oh, then see that you remember. Shivering slightly, the young man sprang to his feet. Now, as you have forced me to land on this side of the loch, Lachlan, I shall dive off the Craig Rube. A score of times have I meant to do it, but I have never been sure if there were enough water below. So, if a water horse gets me, you will know whose was the fault of it. And laughing, disregarding entirely his foster brother's protests, which went so far as the laying of a detaining hand on his bare shoulder, he slid down the bank, ran along the narrow strip of sand below it, and disappeared round a bend of the shore. A moment or two later, his white figure was seen clambering up the heather-clad side of the red crag, which gave the whole property its name. A pause, then he shot down towards the lake in the perfect dive of the athlete, and the water received him with scarcely a splash. "'The cross of Christ be upon us,' murmured Lachlan, shutting his eyes, and, though he was no papist, he signed himself. When he opened them, the beloved head had reappeared safely, and he watched it till the island once more hid it from his view. Still tingling with his dive, Ewan Cameron of Ardroy, when he had reached the other side of the little island, suddenly ceased swimming and, turning on his back, gave himself to floating and meditation. He was just six and twenty and very happy, for the sun was shining and he felt full of vigour and the water was like cold silk about him, and when he went into breakfast there would be Alison, fresh as the morning, to greet him. A foretaste of the mornings to come, when they would greet each other earlier than that. For their marriage contract was even now in his desk at Ardroy, awaiting signature, and the chief of Clan Cameron, Lochiel himself, MacGaldu, Ewan's near kinsman by marriage, as well as his overlord, was coming tomorrow from his house of Achnacarry on Loch Arkig to witness it. Lochiel, indeed, now a man of fifty, had always been to his young cousin, elder brother, and father in one, for Ewan's own father had been obliged to flee the country after the abortive little Jacobite attempt of 1719, leaving behind him his wife and the son of whom she had been but three days delivered. Ewan's mother, a steward of Appen, did not survive his birth a fortnight, and he was nursed, with her own black-haired Lachlan, by Seanich McMartin, the wife of his father's piper. No unusual event in a land of fosterage. But after a while arrived Miss Cameron, the laird's sister, to take charge of the deserted house of Ardroy and to look after the motherless boy, who before the year ended was fatherless, too, for John Cameron died of fever in Amsterdam and the child of six months old became Machichelain, the head of the cadet branch of Cameron of Ardroy. Hence Ewan, with Miss Cameron's assistance, and Lochiel's supervision, had ruled his little domain for as long as he could remember, save only for the two years when he was abroad for his education. It was there, in the Jacobite Society of Paris, 
that he had met Alison Grant, the daughter of a poor, learned, and almost permanently exiled Highland gentleman, a Grant of Glen Morrison, a plotter rather than a fighter. But because Alison, though quite as much in love with her young chieftain as he with her, had refused to leave her father in exile. For the brother of sixteen, just entering a French regiment, could not take her place. Ewan had had to wait for four long years, without much prospect of their marriage. But this very spring, Mr. Grant had received intimation that his return would be winked at by the government, and accordingly returned. And so, there was nothing to stand in the way of his daughter's marriage to the young Laird of Ardroy in the autumn. And Alison's presence here now, on a visit with her father, was no doubt the reason that, though her lover was of the same political creed as they, never questioning its fitness, since it was as natural to him as running or breathing, he was not paying very particular attention to the rumours of Prince Charles Edward's plans, which were going about among the initiated. With deliberate and unnecessary splashings, like a boy, Ewan now turned over again, swam for a while under water, and finally landed, stretched himself in the sun, and got without undue haste into a rather summery costume. There was plenty of time before breakfast to make a more ordered toilette, and his hair would be dry and tied back with a ribbon by then. Perukes and short hair were convenient, but, fashionable or no, he found the former hot. When he was Lochiel's age, perhaps, he would wear one. Before long he was striding off towards the house, whistling a French air as he went. Between the red crag and the spot where he had rated his foster-brother that morning, Ardroy stood alone now with his betrothed. The loch was almost more beautiful in the sunset light than when its waters had closed over his head all those hours ago, and even with Alison on his arm, Ewan was conscious of this, for he adored Loch Nahollere with little less than passion. So they stood, close together, looking at it, while here and there a fish rose had made its little circle, widening until it died out in the glassy infinity, and near shore a shell-duck, with her tiny bobbing brood, swam hastily from one patch of reeds to another. Presently Ewan took off his plaid and spread it for Alison to sit upon, and threw himself down too on the carpet of cranberries. And now he looked, not at the lock, but at her, his own, or nearly his own, at last. Alison's hand waited for so patiently. No, not always so patiently. Strayed among the tiny leaves, and Ewan caught the little fingers, with a swing upon the least but one, and kissed them. And to think, he said softly, that by this time tomorrow we shall be contracted in writing, and you not able to get away from me. Alison looked down at him. In her dark eyes swam all kinds of sweetness, but mischief woke, and danced now at the corners of her small, fine, close-shut mouth, which could be so tender, too. Oh, Ewan, does the contract make you more sure of me? You'd not hold me to a bit of paper if I were to change my mind one fine morning and say, Ardroy, I'm swear to tell it, but wed you I cannot. How would I not hold you to it? Oh, try and see. One of Alison's dimples appeared. Oh, indeed, I minded to try it, and just for that, to see what you would do. Oh, what would you do, ere one for it? I'll carry you off, replied Ewan promptly. And marry me by force? And marry you by force? 
Oh, there speaks the blood of Heland Reavers. I think shame to say such a thing. And are you not Heland yourself, Miss Grant? inquired her lover. And was there never cattle lifting done in Glen Morrison? How oh, cattle, exclaimed Allison, the other dimple in evidence, that I should be likened by him that's contracted to be married to me, to a steer or a cow. Oh, I likened you to no such thing. You're like a hind, a hind that one sees just a glimpse of before it is gone, drinking at the lake on a misty morning. Oh, my heart's darling, he went on, dropping into Gallic. Do not make jests upon our marriage. If I thought that you were in earnest. Oh, Alison, say that you're not in earnest. Alison Grant looked into the clear blue eyes, which had really grown troubled, and was instantly remorseful. Oh, my dear, what a wretch am I to torment you thus. No, no, I was teasing. Loch shall run dry before I break my trust to you. I'll never force you to carry me off. Dislike I'll be at the kirk before you. She let him draw her head without words upon his shoulder, and they sat there silent, looking at happiness. Both the happiness which they knew now, and the greater, the long happiness which was coming to them. As stable and secure in their eyes as the changeless mountains round them. Yet Alison knew her lover's mind, or at least a part of it, so well that she presently said, And yet I am not jesting, Ewan, when I say that I think it would be hard put to it to choose between me and Lochnaholere, Lochnaholere and the house of Ardroy. His arm tightened round her. Oh, Alison, how can you? But you'll never have to choose, Medal. I love this place most dearly already. I've never had a home like it to love, living as we have for so long, now in France, now in Holland. But your heart is as strongly rooted here as, as the red crack yonder. Ewan gave a little sigh. You see a long way into my heart, you that are at the core of it. Indeed, when I'm dying, I think this is the last place I shall have sight of in my mind. I hope I may be seeing it with my eyes also. Alison did not shudder or change the subject, or implore him not to speak of such things, for she was Highland too, with her race's half-mystical preoccupation with the dead. But she thought, I hope I'll die the same day, the same hour. The shadows on the loch crept a little further. Behind them, Ben T. changed color for the hundredth time. His pointed peak seemed to soar. It grew cooler, too and you unwrap the ends of the plaid about his lady. On Wednesday, we will spend the day at Loch Arkig, he announced. We will take ponies, and you and Mr. Grant shall ride. And Miss Cameron? How Aunt Margaret detests such jaunts. Meals for the parlor, and the parlor for meals, and that is her creed. Alison, are you not cold? Oh, in this? She fingered the plaid where it hung over her shoulders, and added, after a moment, how strange it will be to wear another tartan than one's own. How you shall always wear the grant, if it pleases you better. <laughs> no, it does not please me better, answered Alison softly. I feel very warm in the Cameron. He kissed her for that, smiling, and, raising his head from his kiss, became aware of a dark object beating towards them out of the sunset sky. It was the solitary heron of the island, winging his strong way home with a deceptive slowness. 
The sight reminded Ewan of his morning's encounter with Lachlan, and he was about to tell Alison of it, when Fate's messenger, who for the last five minutes had been hurrying round the loch, came past the red crag of Ardroy, and Ewan's quick ear caught the snap of a breaking stick under the deerskin brogues. He looked quickly round. A bearded Highlander was trotting towards them, under the birches and pines. Oh, it is Neil. What can he want? Oh, forgive me. He rose to his feet, and Neil McMartin, who was Lachlan's elder brother and Ewan's piper, broke into a run. McGuldew has just sent this by a man on horseback, he said, somewhat breathlessly, pulling a letter from his sporran. Ewan broke the seal. Or perhaps it is to say that Lochiel cannot come tomorrow, he observed to his betrothed. But as he read, his face showed stupefaction. Oh, great God! Alison sprang to her feet. Oh, Ewan, not bad news. Bad? No, no! He waved Neil out of hearing and turned to her with sparkling eyes. Oh, the princess landed in Scotland. She was at first as amazed as he. Oh, the prince? Landed? When? Where? Ewan consulted his letter again. He landed at Borredale in Arisake on the 25th. Lochiel desires me to go to Achnacary at once. Oh, yes, come, at last, said Alison to herself, almost with awe. And you will go with Lochiel to kiss his hand, to— Oh, Ewan, how I envy you! The light which had come into her lover's eyes died out a little. Oh, I do not know that Lochiel is going to Arisake, darling. He glanced at the letter again. He is troubled, I can see. There are no troops with the prince, none of the hoped-for French help. Oh, but what of that? cried the girl. It is not to be thought of that Lochiel's sword, of all others, should stay in the scabbard. Lochiel will do what is right and honourable. It is impossible for him ever to act otherwise, answered Ewan, who was devoted to his chief. And he wants speech with me. I must set out at once. Yes, Clan Cameron will rise, not a doubt of it. And, youth and the natural ardour of a fighting race reasserting themselves, he snatched up his bonnet and tossed it into the air. Ah, oh, now I know why Lachlan and I thought we saw blood on his dirk this morning. Then he caught Alison to him. Oh, my dearest on earth, give me your kiss. It was the title of one of the ancient pebrocks that he was quoting, and the Highland girl put her arms round his neck and gave him what he asked. Loch Nahollere, bereft of the echoing voices, sank into a silence that was not broken until the heron rose again from the island and began to fly slowly towards the sunset. Then the stillness was rent by a sharp report. The great bird turned over twice, its wings beating wildly, and fell all huddled into the lake. A little boat shot out from the side of the Craig Rug, and in a moment or two Lachlan McMartin, leaving his oars, was bending over the side with the end of a cord in his hand. There was a splash as he threw overboard the large stone to which the cord was fastened, and having thus removed the evidence of his blind effort to outwit destiny, he pulled quickly back to the shelter of the crag of Ardroy. Soon the same unbroken calm the same soft lap and ripple, the same gently fading brightness were once more round Loch Nahollere. Yet, for all those who today had looked on its waters, the current of life was changed forever. 
End of section 1.